is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. David Crosby passed away yesterday. We all know that. He was 81 years old. But, of course, that followed the death earlier last week of legendary guitarist Jeff Beck. So we are going to go in depth into the legacy of these music giants and whether the world can ever recapture that moment in time that made music from the 60s so special and so long-lasting. Doctors, they are concerned about an old STD that now has some new powers, and you really want to hear about that one. I'm a little upset because when yeah. you talked about a new STD with a, with a, an old STD with new powers, and you said you might be interested in that, you looked at me. <laughs> well, you know, if the shoe fits, and, Rob. <laughs> you know. uh, I'll check my shoes later. Yeah. Yellowstone, one of the biggest TV shows out there right now, and uh, there's also a prequel show that's catching up in popularity. 1923, it's got some guy named Harrison Ford in it, and Helen Mirren. Uh, I guess they're big actors. Uh, you might be watching it. If you are, you might recognize the voice of our guest that's coming up in the final half hour of the show today. It's one of the great characters act, actors out there who is in just about everything. And we'll talk to him. And and to be perfectly transparent with listeners, he's actually here now. Yes. Watching <laughs> us do our thing. So so we'll uh, we'll talk to him a little bit later. Uh, we start, though, with the loss of uh, 1960s rock and roll icon David Crosby. With us is Jason Hanley. He's vice president of education and visitor engagement at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. David, uh, or, or Jason, I should say, thanks for being with us. Having me today, guys. So what was it about that time period that produced so many of the the people that went on to be, and it's, it's a cliche now, but it, it's apt, I think, that became these rock icons. What was it about then, and I'm talking about, I guess, the, the 60s and maybe even into the early 70s, that produced such a wide range of very talented people? Yeah, it is amazing to think back, looking at that time period. And if you put it into the broader sort of perspective of rock and roll, rock and roll is really only starting in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And artists like Fats Domino and Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, they're all really breaking new barriers. And they're, you know, doing popular song in a way that people started to take seriously. It became a cultural phenomenon. But by the time we get to the 1960s, particularly after the Beatles uh, explode in the United States in 1964, what we started calling rock instead of rock and roll uh, became a real serious thing. It not only uh, was big business by that time. It was also artists able to do things that were different and unique, and they were able to push the boundaries of sound in ways that hadn't been done before. And the music started being used to talk about what was happening in society. And I think that was a big change. I mean, once you get to the period of Woodstock by the end of the 1960s, artists like David Crosby are using their music as a platform to talk about society and social change. And I think that has stuck with us and the impact and the legacy of their music and their art on so many generations of musicians since continues to be a really important thing to look back on. You know, I came of age during the 70s, so that's that's when my musical taste was formed, and, and some late 60s music as well. Now, it seems to me, just the way I experience music, is that that music, uh, late 60s, getting into the 70s, was part of not just a musical style or a musical form, 
or a series of uh, musicians that we liked. It was also part of a movement, of a lifestyle, of a whole culture, whereas the music that came in after that, not quite as much as it was before. Is is that an accurate way of looking at why some of this music still uh, maintains so much popularity today? Yeah, I think what you're getting at is that, you know, particularly if we're thinking of sort of, you know, the classic baby boomer generation of the time period in the 60s into the 70s, the music that was happening was part of a larger cultural shift in the United States about how people thought about society. You know, it's the shift from the leave it to beaver culture of the 50s or the perceived leave it to beaver culture, I should say, to, you know, the hippie movement and to different ways of thinking about life and what was acceptable and Eastern philosophy and all these ideas, even in music, you look at David Crosby, you know, when he's in the birds or uh, Crosby stills and Nash, he's mixing country music ideas with psychedelic rock, with folk music. And all of this is coming about. I think after that, as you get into the later seventies, you do have movements like punk rock, but they tend to be a little bit more off to the side, uh, sort of out of the mainstream. Let, let me. And I, let, think, I was going to interrupt this because I, I want to bring into our discussion a little bit earlier, and we're going to have a, a lot more uh, time with them later. We have uh, in studio with us Bruce Davison, who is in the uh, Yellowstone prequel, uh, nineteen twenty-three. But uh, before we started, uh, Bruce, you were talking a little bit about the Laurel Canyon uh, phenomenon. Really, can yes. you mention that? Uh, yes, actually, I. I came from New York, um, I guess, well, my agent couldn't pick me up because he was burying his client, Sharon Tate. So that's the period of time I came out. Yeah. And uh, I was in a movie with Barbara Hershey and Richard Thomas, and she took us up to the top of this hill, and it was all fogged in. And she said, this is Laurel Canyon. This is where you're going to want to live. And it's where I ended up. I lived there for 20 years, and it was an amazing time because things were just coming together. David and and Stephen Stills and Graham Nash were just getting together. David Geffen had brought them together as uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And then Neil Young came in on top of that. And I came out to audition for my first Hollywood movie, uh, which was The Strawberry Statement. Right. And at the time... Uh, MGM had uh, all uh, so many of them under contract. So uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and, uh, and so many of the others, Neil Young, all came in. But let me ask you, Jason, uh, before we go, uh, th that whole Laurel Canyon thing, and I think there was even a documentary made about it, a movie. Uh, why was that so special? Why were all these people in that one place at that one point in time? Was it just sort of geography and low rent? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, proximity is a good thing for musicians, right? And it really did develop into that scene. And, you know, what you guys were just saying is absolutely true. You had so many musicians there, you know, eventually from Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles to Crosby, Stills and Nash. I mean, and and they all were very closely connected in this idea of folk music and country and psychedelic rock kind of swirling around. And it, it really led to a creative environment in which they worked with each other a lot, too. A lot of these musicians would share ideas and help each other out and appear on each other's albums. And that type of musical scene always usually produces really exciting new musical ideas. And I think that's what we saw in the Laurel Canyon scene. And that the film you mentioned is a fantastic look at the way the musicians were creating back then.
All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Jason Hanley, Vice President of Education and Visitor Engagement at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. All right. Later on the show, going to talk to one of the actors with a key role in the new hit show, 1923. Uh, you got a spoiler alert already. Uh, the prequel to Yellowstone's Bruce Davison. He's here. Uh, I can't hide it from you anymore. He's been nominated for an Oscar and uh, he has been in everything. Right now, though, a strain of what's being called super gonorrhea has been found in the state of Massachusetts that is resistant to five classes of antibiotics. That would be the bug, not Massachusetts. This This has health experts concerned that this STD could spread quickly. Elizabeth Finley is director of communications at the National Coalition of STD Directors. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on today. So, you know, when you hear things like super anything, uh, sometimes it sounds like it could be a pleasant surprise, but sometimes it sounds really scary. Uh, super gonorrhea sounds really scary, is it? It does sound really scary. And truthfully, it's always a concern when we see an infection that's taking the upper hand and outpacing the tried and true medications we have for treating it. In this case, um, we're seeing something that we really need clinicians to be on the lookout for um, and that we need the general public to be aware of. Uh, The general public are going to be partners in helping make sure that this doesn't get out of hand. You know, not just with gonorrhea, but with so many other infections over the last uh, couple of decades or so, there's been a lot more warnings about these infections that we've had for a long time are are getting smarter and smarter because some of them uh, just uh, figure out how to get better and how to get around the antibiotics that we uh, throw at them. So is this a part of a general trend in which we're seeing more infections that just we, we can't keep up anymore with our science? It's definitely part of a general trend. One thing that we know is that antibiotics tend to be a low priority for drug development. And so we're really seeing these infections move at a speed faster than drugs are getting through the pipeline. Um, For us in the field of sexually transmitted infections and sexual health, we know that we're working uphill against these, just like so many other fields of medicine. But with sexually transmitted infections, we know that people tend to let them go untreated, tend to let them go undetected, because sometimes there's stigma against that care, or they don't know how to access it, or they're worried about being judged when they do access it. And so we're in a situation um, that just really lets these kinds of new um, super infections thrive. So, Elizabeth, uh, we mentioned reading into you that it's resistant to five classes of antibiotics. I- I'm hoping that there's a sixth class. The good news in this case is that the folks in Massachusetts who treated this were able to find an antibiotic that cured these two patients. We just can't guarantee that that will always be the case. As you said earlier, these are infections that will keep getting smarter and smarter. And um, what else can be done about if we can't uh, if we can't always fight these with the uh, antibiotics that we have on hand? Uh, I know that education plays a role in kind of stopping the spread of some of these STDs. But how effective is that these days? And what are you what kind of wall are you running into? 
Right. Education is certainly an important strategy. Um, we're running into a number of laws or um, blocks. So certainly um, health education and sex education in schools is something that um, is frequently the target of pushback in communities. We know that our field, the, the STI programs and clinics that can do testing and treatment and community outreach, outreach, those clinics, those programs are very underfunded and have seen funding cut year over year for decades. Right, but Elizabeth, those I, are I, really, I, I, right, but I don't want to leave the, and I don't, I'm sure you don't either. I don't want to leave the impression that, that STDs is a problem just for kids. I mean, it, it's a problem also. For older people, and, and including, and some people are surprised by this, uh, senior citizens. You're absolutely correct. Sure. So the recommendation is that people get tested for sexually transmitted infections every single year or any time that they have a new partner or if a partner tests positive for something. And that's why I say that the general public are our partners in preventing um, infections like this. We need people to get those yearly tests um, regardless of their age. So certainly, um, you know, you, you think about younger folks on the end of the spectrum, like college students, all the way up to folks who are retirees and still very active. All right. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Finley, Director of Communications at the National Coalition of STD Directors. Welcome back to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, you know how some actors, you seem to see them everywhere, and every time you see them, you say, oh, that guy. You go to the movies, you see them there, you're, they're in the movie, you turn on the TV, he's on the TV show. Bruce Davison is one of those actors. Yeah, most recently he played uh, corrupt Senator Randall Schaefer in Ozark. He started the 1971 horror film Willard, which really became a cult classic. He won a Golden Globe Award, was nominated for an Oscar for his role in Longtime Companion in 1989. Now Davison is in the hit Yellowstone. That's the, of course, prequel. Uh, well, actually, 1923, which is the prequel yeah. to Yellowstone, right. the other way around. Yeah. Uh, and 1923 stars uh, Harrison Ford, of course, and Helen uh, Mirren, Bruce Davison. Uh, we had a little bit of him a, a little bit earlier in the show, a sort of sneak preview uh but once again bruce thanks for being with us great charles nice to be here so so first i gotta ask you what is it because i mentioned in the yeah. setup to you that mm -hmm. you were nominated for an oscar so what's it like to i mean can you describe to somebody who is never going to be nominated for an oscar what is it like when you find out you've been nominated for one um, well, a lot of people show up at your house, but I see you have all these awards that look like a Golden Globe with a little <laughs> mic on top of it, so yeah. you must have had some connection. Yeah, but it's different. But it's, I mean, it's, well, it's, the, it's the Academy Award. Uh, yes, it is. It's, it's a merry-go-round, and it's a, it's, I can't say it's necessarily fun to go through it because, oh. first of all, uh, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to be, you know, elected and honored but all the films and everything and you're up against five other people any one of them that would be just as lucky or good as things come along and it's like really riding around on this golden carousel and the brass ring comes down and you're the guy that grabs it <laughs> when that happens that's just sort of 
it's it's a lot of Las Vegas is involved. In <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You talk about when you when you win an award and you're up against so many other very talented people, and you kind of feel like you know how why is it me? But has the opposite ever happened for you? Have you ever won an award in your life anywhere where the people you were up against you were like, yeah, I should have won because those people sucked. <laughs> no. See, I'm putting no. you in the spot because I know you you won't be able to say. No, of course I wouldn't say that. <laughs> you know, I could never say you suck or you suck in that. But because I and I I haven't had that opportunity much. By yeah. the time somebody reaches through that, there are so many levels that you go through. The I mean, starting with the the, the Sundance and then the um, Golden Globes and the Independent Spirit Awards and the L.A. Critics. And the, the whole award New season. The Critics and the National Critics. And it's all this sort of long-distance race. But, but let, me, let, let me try Rob's question from a different point, <laughs> different way of putting it. Good luck. So, so you, you get nominated for the Oscar, uh, which is great. I, yeah. I'm sure you're really excited. Uh you know, you you didn't win, but right. but when everybody loses an Oscar, they always say, "Well, yeah, it's disappointing, but you know, I'm glad for my fellow actors, and they really deserved <laughs> right. it." I mean, you know, really, how does it really feel? Yeah. Well, I'm standing yeah. standing alone in the parking lot, waiting for the limo driver who's crying. Oh, and um, I feel a hand on my shoulder, and it's Gregory Peck. And wow. I look up and he's waiting for his car too, and he says, "You know, I had to come back here six times before they gave me one." Really? Yeah. Wow. And, but did uh, that make you feel better, though, or not really? Not really. Because you know, he, he was he was <laughs> he was who he was. I'm I've always been a character actor. Right. I mean, since when I was young, I started out. I was a bit of a starlet for four or five pictures, but something really slammed me words that I heard from Robert Aldrich, great director, directed um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane mm-hmm. and um, um, D- Dirty Dozen. And I was shooting a movie with with um, uh, Burt Lancaster and uh, co-starring with him. And I was just a young kid. And he said one day, kid, you don't want to be a leading man. You'll be a leading man. You'll do six pictures and you'll be washed up at 30. Nobody ever hear from you again. Do the supporting roles. Be the victim or the villain or the doctor or the lawyer and you can raise a family in this town. Wow, and and it's true. That's what happened to me. I mean, basically... All right. Uh, yeah, even this uh, this part in 1923, it's a very small part, but it's impactful. And we're, we're, I'm going to hold up because yeah, we, okay. we, we want to tease, yeah. our, tease our audience a little yes. bit because yeah. a lot of people I know, they, they love Yellowstone and they want to watch. You're pointing to, to Karen Adams. Right, because she is Karen? a huge Yellowstone fan and has uh, talked yeah. me and my wife, <laughs> and right. starting with Yellowstone, and, and they're going to do the prequels. And Karen, are you, are you, are you up to 1923 yet? I'm going to begin 1923 very soon. Okay. Yes. And 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 uh, Bruce, does she have something to look forward to? Oh, it's it's going to grow and it's going to be fine and it's filled with hundreds of brilliantly talented actors from all over. I'm surprised at all the wonderful people that are involved in it. Okay, we're going to talk a I lot. I love it. You're listening to KNX in depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. And we are back again with Bruce Davison, who is joining us in studio. He is now one of the stars in the prequel to Yellowstone 1923. We've already gone through his uh, really very impressive career. We've got more to to go, and he's got more to go. So, uh, Bruce, thanks for being with us 
today. Uh, we're also going to be joined in our discussion by uh, our own KNX uh, Karen Adams, who uh, is a big fan of Yellowstone and I think is going to probably be a big fan of 1923. Aren't you, Karen? I will, because I love Westerns. You I love, love Westerns? Westerns? I do. Okay. I do. So, Bruce, uh, 1923, why were you interested? Well, actually, let me backtrack. Maybe you weren't interested. How did you get involved in that particular show? Well, first of all, I want to say my part is very small. There are I no mean, small parts. Well, there are no. Well, there are small actors, though. <laughs> yeah, true. But, true. Um, <laughs> um, I, the, I had first seen 1883 before I had watched Yellowstone because I uh, and I so, so fell in love with the writing and the characters and the acting in it. It was just one of the best things I remember seeing and be totally moved by it. And then I started to realize what Taylor Sheridan, the writer, director, producer, the creator, had done before. Um, he had done a film with Jeremy Renner that, that I thought was really uh, wonderful. Um, and so I started to watch Yellowstone as well. And it was really interesting because what happens is you care about each and every one of these characters. And as a character actor, you don't want to just be the mechanical all the time. You want to see a, a person there yeah. that exists. And every one of his characters breathes life. Whatever little part is inserted into it. And I thought I'd... And um, somebody gave me a... Uh, an audition, so I did a British accent and suddenly <laughs> found myself in it. But uh, like I say, I haven't showed up as more than a glorified extra so far. But no. uh, all right, uh, so there's some impactful stuff coming down the road. So you say you have a small part, but even as, as somebody who's who's uh, say a small part of the cast, uh, how much inside information do you get when uh, w when you get a script? Do you see the whole script? So do you know where the show's going? Uh, no, but I talk to the lead. <laughs> ah, he, he, he feeds, fills me in sometime. I don't want to bust. His, now, how much his, would it cost us if we could pay you to spill some beans about what's coming up? It can't be done. Right. I've got a bag say, of candy you know, over here. <laughs> So, I got all I need. So, Karen, I, I, I have a quick question. Yeah, no, no, though. go ahead. And I'm Karen. looking at here, 1923 is going to take a short break following a dramatic, that dramatic episode four. Should I hold out until uh, it comes back? What's what's well, going on it, here? It's it's very hard. My wife uh, always says, I don't want to watch any of it until it's completed because I'll go uh, crazy yeah. if I watch the first four and not that. But it, um, other people are different. They they want to, you know, keep up week to week with what's happening. But there, I'm afraid to watch now because it says dramatic episode four. I can't. I, that's suspense. I mean, that's going to. Well, Karen, yeah. what is it that you? I mean, what do you like about Yellowstone, and what do you want to see? In 1923, because maybe Bruce would be so nice as he could go and tell <laughs> the people who are writing you know, the scripts, no. this is what Karen yeah, wants I, to see. I don't have I'm a lot of pull in that <laughs> yes. area, i got to tell you. I'm in love, you know, Bruce, I'm in love with the characters, that dysfunction. I mean, they're real. I mean, they're all broken characters, but you can relate to them. It's like you, you love them like Beth. Does 1923, I mean, is that dysfunction still there? Yes, it is. And, and the violence and the complexity, mm -hmm. but it's all character driven. And every character, even the smaller parts that don't have any lines, or you, you see a character that 
is something like uh, all the ranch hands on Yellowstone, now that I've started watching that, every single one of them is a definable person that's real, you know, that the cow hand girl with the pink hair and everybody who just rides in and out of that show uh you you just you you love them yeah and, right. and you can't have a family drama without dysfunction bruce tell us about the character who who do you play oh um well i play uh, arthur lord of sussex who arthur lord of sussex yes who uh, has a uh, the son who's jilted by one of the the stars in it and it leads to uh, some stuff down the road. Can yes. you do? A, I mean, are you comfortable doing a, an acting no, in a, a British, British accent? accent? Well, I I started when I was a kid, when I was four years old, to impress my uh, relatives by doing my Claude Rains at four. Well, he was my Bible no, man, man, story. Were, yeah, but it you was were little four. records that I had like Bible stories, and yeah. they'd say go to bed, and I'd say, "This is the story of David and Goliath." The young shepherd boy who went down to the river and chose five smooth stones and put them <laughs> oh, in I love sleep. it. So and then, I, you know, I get to stay up for another hour. <laughs> we need we need to have you do some uh, some intros for the show. I think <laughs> yeah, right. in that voice because I think that that no one in in uh, Southern California could beat us. Then oh well, we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about uh, about earlier. You know. This is kind of a character actor, you say, and you've yeah. done your career. You've, you've kind of stayed on the character side. Now, of the characters you played, do you find yourself mostly cast as a bad guy or a good guy? I'm going to guess bad guy because mm. that's where characters really come in. Well, it depends. Um, like I said, Robert Aldrich said to me, the best parts are always the villains and the victims. If you have a great death scene... They'll remember you if you're the bad guy. Do it, and then you learn things as you go along. Burgess Meredith taught me. He said, "If you're going to play a a villain, enjoy your evil. Enjoy the evil. Enjoy. enjoy you know, I played doing. Satan. I understand that. Wait, wait, hold it. Wait, wait, no, wait. But stop. It's not about me. It's about Bruce. Wait, wait, wait. No, so no, 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 no. Hold it. Stop, stop. You played Satan. I sure did. But where? Bruce. Where? No, 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 no. You're not getting out. I of was this. in a play. It yeah, was... and you played Satan. Yeah, I okay. was the devil. And when, the devil. when, when did you I was stop? A very good devil. When too. did you stop playing Satan? When I moved out here. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but, but no, but it's not about me, Bruce. I do have a question. Yes. Dear. <laughs> how how did watching Yellowstone prepare you for your character on 1923? Well, I hadn't watched Yellowstone, but I watched 1883, which is oh, okay. the progression. How okay, it so starts. Did... But this is a whole. It just takes it in a whole other direction. I don't have that much to do with. Um, the, what's happening back in Montana, the Dutton family, but uh, the stuff that we have is is in Africa, and uh, well, I, I I can't talk too no, 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 okay. much. Just have to wait for those. You know, other but, but I'm kind of fry. Yeah, I know, uh, but but let me ask you because we've now learned about uh, uh, Karen's theatrical experience. Mm-hmm. You you've done stage uh, in yes. your career, yes, uh, and it's the question that's always asked, I think, of, of actors. You know, you've done stage, you've done film, you've done television. Mm-hmm. Do you have a a favorite uh, type of acting? Because they're all different in a way, aren't they? Yes, they're totally different. I I I, I really love doing theater. The- live it, theater. Yes, it's harder now as one gets older to do eight performances a week of, of a show, and certainly isn't as lucrative as going off and doing a TV series or 
stuff like that. But I, I love theater. I always, always have because you work and it finally becomes the actor's medium. You're on stage. You're there and you have 1,200 people or however many are in the theater. And you've got to carry them all the way through the hour and a half or two hours that the play lasts and you have to hold them. It's about you. When you're doing films, it's, you know, 30 seconds here, wait for six hours, <laughs> 30 yeah. seconds there, wait for another six hours, uh, on and on like that. And then do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And you never know what's going to be chosen, what's going to be taken and put into a film. You don't have the control. It's the director's. You've done so many things uh, on t- on TV and film going back to that. Uh have you done so many that you've forgotten some and you, you see a movie or a TV show and you see yourself and go, I don't remember doing that one? <laughs> yes. Yes. It's happened more. It has? The older I get. <laughs> I sort of look back and my wife will be flipping through a, a, a murder she wrote or something. Oh, there you are. Oh, yeah. What happened then? And I can't remember years. I could remember what relationship maybe I was in or what was happening at the time or where I lived. But it's it all gets into a big melting okay, here soup. Co- here here comes a question that may get you into trouble unless you're very diplomatic. Okay. Uh, who are some of the best actors you've worked with and who are some of the worst? Um, well, I, I, I can't really say the worst because I, I can't. Well, I, if you're I, dead, no, it's okay. No, I, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I really can't think of any. I love actors. Actors are courageous people putting themselves out in the middle there. I've seen actors in a panic. I've seen actors get angry and throw things. But it's all has to do with something that's driven that I understand completely because the vulnerability is so sharply there. I mean, the great actors I've worked with are uh, uh, Paul Schofield in The Crucible. Certainly loved him. Um, uh, Donald Pleasance. Um, uh, uh, Burt Lancaster, Lucille Ball, Henry Fonda certainly all gave me great advice as I went along. You just reminded me because uh, the Daniel Day-Lewis version of The Crucible is is one of my I'm a huge fan of the play, mm-hmm. uh, but that's one of my favorite movie adaptations of a play. I thought it was so well done. Daniel Day-Lewis was just phenomenal in that. And you were in that. Yes. See, again, I forgot that you were yeah. in that. You've yes. been in so many things right. that I have to have my memory refresh. What was your experience uh, on that? Uh, obviously, you had done the play before, I'm assuming. Yes. So you're familiar no, no, with no, the text. I had not done the play before. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, I... But I certainly wanted to do... I played Reverend Paris, who starts the ball rolling... There And uh, we had a brief rehearsal period, and uh, Daniel and I were very friendly and showing each other kid pictures and stuff. And it came time to shoot, wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't have anything to do with me, and would mess with me in scenes that, you know, put stinky stuff in my pulpit because <laughs> it gave him ambiance or whatever. And... Uh, I turned to Jeffrey Jones one day, a, a fellow actor, and I said, what's his problem? And he said, we're his enemies. <laughs> oh, well, well, no, you, I got it. Do now you go I'm in the, yeah, But do you go in for that, that sort of method acting well, thing or, or no? I'm, I'm not driven 
the way that is. But I'm not a star like Daniel Day-Lewis either. I mean, he came, he built the set with the 16th century <laughs> tools with the crew there three months before any of us ever showed up. Wow. So when and you're at, at the end of the shoot, and we shot in sequence, um, we took the last shot and it was getting dark. The director said, that's a wrap. And I looked over at him. And he smiled, and he put his arms around me, and I started to cry. <laughs> oh. wow. Karen, you had a quick question? Yes. So yeah. when you're Lord of Sussex, yeah. do you remain in character on 1923? Um, I try to. Um, uh, I'm, I'm always slipping and sliding out of it. Uh, but I, uh, there's something uh, Barbara Rush told me something. I'd woken out of a sound sleep. And I was being marched down a hall. I didn't even know where I was. I find myself in the L.A. airport, 3 in the morning, standing next to Barbara who's doing her own makeup. And I said, Barbara, you ever get confused about what's real and what's not? She said, oh, darling, it's only real when they say action. Ah, mm, good, very good point. There's something about that in an actor's life. Everything comes together in that moment when... When they say action, you're in free fall. Mm. That's great. That's a great place to leave it. Bruce Davison, uh, just in everything, and a, a great person to uh, talk to. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being, so and thanks for being for, here. And thanks for Karen Adams. And for Karen for uh, telling I us that she was it. Satan it was at one point. <laughs> and, and may still be. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, today's K-Nex in depth.